It's time for the news, baby. Washington opens mouth in New York City. Woodrow's 14-pointers of no return. And Handel goes opera, but will he break a leg? Plus, coming up, a world exclusive. We've found Jesus and he's not pleased with fat-bottomed clown Johnson. We've found Jesus and he's not pleased with fat-bottomed clown Johnson. Those are the headlines. Now choke on them like a spud. News bang. The last word on a truth that refuses to die. Eldon. 1790. On this day in 1790, George Washington, a man so American he had both a state and an airport named after him, delivered the first State of the Union Address. The United States, then just a fledgling nation with dreams of one day invading other countries, gathered around their town criers to hear their fearless leader speak. Washington droned on about the budget, economy, and other things no one cared about. We must build more roads, he yawned, and tax whiskey. Yawns rippled through the crowd as they struggled to stay awake. One eyewitness, drunk Dave from Delaware, said, I've seen paint dry faster than this guy talk. The speech was well received by those who stayed awake, but many found it long-winded and full of pork-barrel rhetoric. One eyewitness, Horatio Cringeworthy, said, I came for the free ale and some light treason talk. Instead, I got an hour-long lecture on tariffs. But it wasn't all doom and gloom. Some found inspiration in his words. John Adams was spotted taking notes furiously before passing out on his quill. The speech lasted over two hours or days, depending on how fast you could sleepwalk. In the end, both sides fell asleep, but agreed that at least he didn't invite them round for tea afterwards. 19 1918. 1918, and in a move that would change the world forever, President Woodrow Wilson unveiled his 14 points for post-World War I peace. The American president, known for his fondness for even numbers and geometric shapes, had a vision for a new world order. His Wilsonianism, as it became known, was a radical departure from the harding-on-for-peace policy of his predecessors. The 14 points were simple. 1. No more war. 2. Everyone gets a turn with the ball. 3. Share your toys. 4 a hug instead of a punch, and so on. Wilson hoped these principles would end the carnage of the Great War, which had seen millions perish and led to the Spanish flu pandemic, an illness contracted by sneezing on paella. The League of Nations was born out of these points, an organisation where countries could come together and talk about their feelings over tea and biscuits instead of fighting, and so began a new era of international cooperation, until they all started squabbling again in the 30s. Felicity Steele, 1735. In the year of our Lord, 1735, when Whigs were high and morals were low, a German immigrant by the name of George Frederick Handel unleashed his latest operatic masterpiece upon an unsuspecting London. Ariodante premiered at the Covent Garden Theatre, a venue so posh they couldn't even be bothered to finish its name. The story, based on some Italian bloke's work, tells the tale of a Scottish warrior who falls in love with a milkmaid called Cynthia. Cue three hours of singing about dairy products and battle cries. The opera was a smash hit, literally as one disgruntled audience member chucked an orange at the tenor. Handel, 
not to be deterred by this fruit-based assault, went on to compose more operas and oratorios than you could shake a conductor's baton at. His music is now considered high baroque, which is like regular baroque, but with more harpsichords and castrati. Covent Garden today remains a mecca for lovers of fat people, in tights belting out tunes about dead heroes and jilted lovers. And that, it seems, is why we can't have nice things. A news bang, a blast of truth in the face of fiction. And now, Shakanaka Giles with the weather forecast for tomorrow. Brightening up the first day of the work week, the southeast should be bathed in sunshine, like a toddler's smile after being handed an ice cream. Meanwhile, the Midlands will experience a mild chill, just enough to remind you that winter's still around, not unlike a mother-in-law who overstays her welcome. Scotland and the north of England will see a bit of snowfall, as if nature's sprinkling icing sugar on the landscape. But don't worry, it won't be enough to disrupt your morning commute. In summary, a frosty start, a nippy middle and a chilly end. So grab your thermals and enjoy the winter wonderland. And that's all the weather. Nineteen seventy-two. The year 1972 saw Pakistan release Sheikh Mujibur Rahman from prison, culminating in the establishment of Bangladesh. The Pakistani Instrument of Surrender was signed, marking the end of the Bangladesh Liberation War. The victorious Zulfikar Ali Bhutto and Sheikh Mujibur Rahman emerged as significant figures in this historical saga. Bangladesh hails Sheikh Mujibur Rahman as the father of the nation. For a deeper dive into the intricacies of this transformative conflict, we turn to our correspondent Brian Bastable. In the midst of a maelstrom of war where the gunpowder smoke chokes the sky and the screams of the fallen rise like a chorus of tortured souls, we find ourselves on the precipice of history. This is the cauldron of hate, fury and chaos where the fate of millions is decided by the fall of the dice. The land is strewn with the remnants of the vanquished. The ground is a quagmire of blood and guts, punctuated by the dying moans of the mortally wounded. The cacophony of war rages on, the deafening roar of artillery, the staccato bursts of machine gun fire, the thundering crash of mortar rounds. The horizon is ablaze with the hellish inferno of war, the black smoke billowing upwards, the red flames licking the sky. As I stood here on the edge of the battlefield, I could feel the very earth trembling beneath my feet, the tremors of the impending doom. The smell of death and destruction was in the air, the acrid stench of burnt flesh and the metallic tang of blood. The soldiers, the brave men who have been fighting for their lives, are standing on the precipice of history, their eyes filled with fear and determination. The battle lines are drawn, the die is cast, and the fate of the nation hangs in the balance. In the midst of this maelstrom of war, I saw a man, a man who has been fighting for his freedom, for his people, for his nation. Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, the father of the nation, 
the man who has been leading the charge for the liberation of Bangladesh. He stood tall, his face etched with the lines of time, his eyes burning with the fire of freedom. He was a man who had been through the crucible of war, who had seen the worst of humanity, and yet he stood unbroken, unbowed, and unyielding. As I stood there, I could feel the weight of history, the burden of a nation's hopes and dreams, resting on the shoulders of this one man. The fate of Bangladesh, the destiny of its people, was in his hands. He is a man who has known suffering, who has seen the darkest depths of human cruelty, and yet he stands tall, his spirit unbroken. The people I'm standing with are so uncourageable. They're fighting for their very unfuturish future. This is the war that's got the world on its tattered, blood-stained and battle-worn T-shirt. Brian Bastable, Newsbang, reporting from the front lines of history. 2011. In a shocking incident that shook the very core of American democracy, Jared Lee Loeffner went on a rampage in Tucson, Arizona, indiscriminately firing at a public gathering hosted by Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. The tragic event resulted in six innocent lives being snuffed out and left 12 others nursing injuries. Giffords, a beacon of hope for her district, was shot point-blank in the head, sustaining a severe brain injury that would ultimately lead to her resignation from her esteemed position. As the community grapples with the aftermath of this senseless violence, we turn to Ken Shit for a deeper dive into the story. Good evening, degenerates. As we travel back in time to the year 2011, let's not forget the goddamn atrocity that took place in Tucson, Arizona, a city as beautiful as it is scorching, home to the University of Arizona, and now forever tainted by the actions of a deranged lunatic named Jared Lee Loeffner. This twisted piece of shit opened fire at a public meeting held by US Representative Gabby Giffords, a Democratic hero representing Arizona's 8th Congressional District. The meeting was supposed to be about democracy and civic engagement, but instead it turned into a bloodbath that claimed six innocent lives and left 12 others fighting for theirs. Gabby Giffords, a trailblazing woman who dedicated her life to public service, was shot point-blank in the head. The bullet left her with a severe brain injury that would change her life forever. She fought like hell to recover, but eventually had to resign from her position in the United States House of Representatives due to her injuries. Jared Lee Loeffner pled guilty to 19 charges of murder and attempted murder in connection with this heinous crime. But what kind of justice can we expect for these victims, for Gabby Giffords, for the families who lost loved ones? Is there any solace to be found in this godforsaken world? As we sit here tonight, surrounded by comfort and safety, let us never forget the horrors that took place on that fateful day in Tucson. This is Ken Shit, reminding you that no matter how dark things get, there will always be light shining through. Eatin Sudden, 1936. Reza Shah has issued a decree banning Islamic veils in Iran, a mandate that endures for five years, but the hijab, a head covering worn by many Muslim women has since become de rigueur in Iran for the past 44 years. 
The hijab's use has been on the rise worldwide since the 1970s, with Islamic scholars in consensus that covering the head is required or preferred. However, some argue that it is not mandated. To unveil the veil on this story, we have Hardiman Pesto. This year marks the 88th anniversary of the Shah's decree banning the hijab in Iran. Ah, a fascinating piece of history. Pesto, do you think that was a step in the right direction? I believe it was, Martin, but the Shah was a visionary. He was promoting a more progressive westernized image of Iran. And yet, here we are today with the hijab mandatory in Iran for the past 44 years. Quite a reversal, wouldn't you say? Well, you see, Martin, that's the beauty of historical events. They're always subject to change. So you're saying that the Shah's decree was a fleeting moment in Iran's history? Absolutely, Martin. It was like a meteor, a brief flash of light before disappearing into the void. A meteor? Yes, Martin, just like the one that exploded over Russia recently. It was quite a spectacle. Pesto, we're discussing the hijab in Iran, not meteors over Russia. I'm just saying, Martin, that sometimes things change. One moment you're banning the hijab, the next moment you're making it mandatory. So, are you saying that the Shah's decree was just a momentary lapse in judgment? I'm saying that history is full of surprises, Martin. Pesto, do you think that the Shah's decree was influenced by his own personal beliefs? I believe so, Martin. The Shah was a modernizer, a man who wanted to bring Iran into the 20th century. And yet today, Iran is one of the most religiously conservative countries in the world. Quite a turnaround, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, Martin. It's like the country did a complete 180-degree turn. A complete 180-degree turn? Yes, Martin. Just like the Earth rotates on its axis. Pesto, we're discussing the hijab in Iran, not the Earth's rotation. I'm just saying, Martin, that sometimes things change. One moment you're banning the hijab, the next moment you're making it mandatory. Pesto, thank you. Pesto Hardiman lived from the year 1936. Uh, 1991. In a tragic tale that would later inspire one of the most iconic grunge anthems of the 90s, Jeremy Wade Dell, a high school student in Richardson, Texas, took his own life in class. The shocking incident in 1991 left an indelible mark on the community and Pearl Jam, who immortalized the story in their 1992 hit, Jeremy. As we delve deeper into this tale of sorrow and catharsis, we turn to CBN's Melody Wintergreen for her report. Richardson, Texas, where the halls of learning have become corridors of mourning, Jeremy Wade Dell, a student whose absence was noted not by a roll call but by a gunshot. Today, the silence in the classroom is deafening, the chalk dust settling like the aftermath of an unspeakable storm. The students sit frozen, textbooks open to pages they'll never remember as Pearl Jam's soon-to-be anthem, Jeremy, is being penned in the collective heart of a nation. Eddie Vedder's voice will carry Jeremy's story beyond these walls, turning personal tragedy into public catharsis. The band formed in the grunge-washed streets of Seattle now finds itself entangled in the tapestry of Texan tragedy. As Pearl Jam's chords strike deep and resonate with the youth of America, they echo a question that hangs heavier than any guitar. How did we come to this? And as Jeremy becomes not just a song, but a symbol, it seems this classroom has taught us all something profound about the human condition and the haunting melodies that sometimes emerge from its darkest recesses. Melody Wintergreen, reporting for Newsbang, Richardson, Texas, a disunited state of America. 
news bang. Making sense of nonsense, one fact at a time. 1904. In a monumental leap for the Windy City, the year 1904 saw the opening of the Blackstone Library, the first branch of the Chicago public library system. A marvel of architect Solon S. Beeman, the library was funded privately and named after Timothy Blackstone. Torn from the annals of history, the Blackstone Library now stands as the Chicago Public Library. Blackstone Branch, a Chicago landmark. And to discuss the library's enduring allurance and the Chicago Public Library System's 81 locations, we're joined by our Smithsonian Moss. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho. It's your girl, Smithsonian Moss, and I am hyped to be here tonight to talk about one of the most iconic moments in pop culture history. You know, I was just a youngin' back in 1904, but I can only imagine the pandemonium that ensued when Timothy Blackstone decided to drop that library like a hot steaming pile of knowledge. Oh my god! Can you even believe it? The Blackstone Library, y'all. Like, this classic institution hits the scene all the way back in 1904 and then BAM! Timothy Blackstone comes along and decides to put his own spin on it. And by spin, I mean he basically had Chicago crying, wetting their pants and screaming for their mamas like it was the apocalypse. We're talking books, babes. And Timothy Blackstone was like, you know what? Let's make this shit real. And then bam. Librarying was never the same. Did people really freak out that much? Uh, yeah. Y'all. People were losing their minds. They thought the library was real, and they were terrified. Like, can you blame them? Books coming for our planet? No thank you. Next. So, there you have it, y'all. The Blackstone Library. The radio broadcast that started it all. And the pandemonium that ensued. It's like a real-life episode of Stranger Things. But instead of Demogorgons, we've got books with a penchant for world domination, stopped only by spoilers. That's all for tonight, y'all. Tune in next time for more pop shenanigans. This is Smithsonian Moss, ridden hard and put away wet. Newsbang, bold, brave, and barely believable. 1956. The year is 1956, and the uncontacted Huarani tribe of Ecuador's Amazon rainforest became the focus of international attention. In a tragic turn of events, five American evangelical Christian missionaries lost their lives as they attempted to bring Christianity to the tribe. The Huarani, known for their fierce violence, attacked the missionaries after months of exchanging gifts. The tribe, indigenous to the Amazonian region, inhabits a vast area of the rainforest, home to numerous indigenous territories. To shed light on the spiritual implications of this event, we turn to our religious correspondent, Pastor Kevin Monstrance. Good evening, ladies and gents. I come before you tonight with a tale of misadventure in the far-flung jungles of Ecuador. But first, a quick word about the weather. Balmy out there today, wasn't it? Had me hankering for one of those fruity cocktails with the little umbrellas, though I'd likely end up wearing it behind my ear before long. Reminds me of a trip I took to visit my Aunt Edna 
in Barbados back in 79. <laughs> but I digress. On to my tale of tropical intrigue from 1956. The setting is the Amazon rainforest of Ecuador, home to the Huaurani people, a tribe known for their fierceness. Well, a group of five American evangelists got it into their heads to try bringing Christianity to the Huaurani, who up until then had had little contact with the outside world. The missionaries were led by a fiery preacher named Pastor Billy Bob Balsam, who claimed it was their heavenly duty to convert the heathens. <laughs> After months of cautiously exchanging gifts with the tribe, Pastor Billy Bob decided it was time to preach the gospel directly to them. He gathered his group deep in the jungle one Sunday morning and began bellowing a sermon, despite the local translator urging him to take it slow. Well, faster than you can say, Hail Mary, the Huaurani warriors leapt out of the bushes and attack it. <laughs> Pastor Billy Bob desperately tried baptising them in the river as spears flew, but it was no use. The five missionaries met their maker that day in a most unchristian fashion which reminds me of the missionary joke I heard from my cousin Bertie last Christmas down at the pub. Apparently a missionary came to the door, came to his door asking if he could help with the floods in Borneo. He said, sure, but my garden hose only reaches to the end of the driveway. Reminds us that forcing change never works out well. Best to take things slow and steady like a good gin and tonic. Cheerio for now. <laughs> And now for the final roundup of tomorrow's headlines. The Times, Iranian protests in Kulmova Khomeini. The Telegraph, BE troops defeat Otomos at Rafa. And The Sun, Bang Bucks Lakers, 33-game winning stroll. That's it. And now for a final message. If you're a man and you're over 40, you're not old. You're a man and you're over 40. That's it. Good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.